Thank you for joining us for this message from Cornerstone Community Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. And now let's join our guest speaker. Well, good morning. Uh, The title of my message today is Expressions of Worship. And this was the second part of a two-part message I told you about a couple weeks ago uh, when I did Expressions of Praise. And what I did two weeks ago was I wanted to take you through the Bible and show you how men and women, angels and Jesus, praised God. And so hopefully that was helpful. And the goal was to help you praise God more. So hopefully you guys have been praising God more. Uh, Praising God, we said, was really, it's an expression that we share to God for who He is. And we can use our whole body. I can speak good things to God. I can sing good things to God. I can... There was some clapping that went on this morning. Can we? It's alright to clap, isn't it? And then some people raise their hands to God. Why are they doing that? Well, sign of surrender, sign of uh, saying, God, you're, you're everything. I, here I am. Um, sometimes, you raise, when you're a little child, why do you raise your hands? Because you want to be picked up by dad, right? Or by mom. So, I mean, whatever you do, symbolically, it has a meaning in your heart. So we talked about that. Uh, But this time, I want to finish it with expressions of worship. Okay, so we looked at praise. And I did something that was a little unprecedented. I actually sang a little bit. If you're still here today, you are a very spiritual group of people. (laughs) I didn't run anybody off. Uh, That's good. I'm not going to be singing today. You'll be happy to know. Uh, (laughs) that's okay I can make a joyful noise Uh, so today we're going to go over expressions of worship I want to answer some questions Um, do we have a praise team do we have a worship team or do we have a praise and worship team so we want to answer that question today and then we want to answer how should we really worship God uh, because Rebecca, when she was up here, she called us to worship God. And she defined what it was, actually. It was pretty neat. And the last song we sang was calling us to worship God. So what does that really mean? That's what we want to talk about today. So I'm going to begin with Job. Okay, Job. And let's, we're going to examine how did Job worship God and what can we learn from it. So in Job chapter 1, verse 8, I'm going to share a little context Uh, First, reading verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Okay, so what is God's pronouncement on Job? This guy is following me. There's nothing wrong with him. Okay, you need to know that before we go on. Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you not blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But if you put forth your hand now, God, and touch all that he has, he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, you're on. Well, not quite, but behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him 
So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So we have this conversation going on in heaven. Job has no idea what's going on. And, you know, Satan is doing his job. What's Satan's job? He's the accuser of the brethren. And so he's accusing God of, of course they worship you, O mighty God, because you bless them and protect them. But take that away and we'll see what, see what they do to you. I mean, that's basically what Satan was saying. Now, if he said that about Job and God said that about Job, I wonder if that conversation is ever had in heaven about us. Something to think about, right? Job was just a man. We're just men and women. Okay, so what happens is God allows Satan to take things from Job. I'm not going to read it. I'll just It's not on your screen, but um, one day the... Uh, Sabaeans came and they killed his servants and they killed his oxen. And then another day, um, the fire fell, fell from heaven and consumed all the sheep and the servants. And then another time, the Chaldeans sent raiding parties and they, took all, they killed all the camels and killed all the servants. And then another day, uh, Job had seven sons and three daughters. They're eating and drinking in a house and a, and a big wind came and knocked the house and killed his family. And you're like, what? <laughs> really? Killed my family? I mean, it's one thing to lose your sheep. Now, for them, sheep would be, if, let's say you drive truck and your, your business is your, tr- your trucking business and your truck was creamed somehow, wrecked. You know, it's one thing to lose your truck it's another thing to lose your children, right? So now it's, it's at a different level. Well, what did Job say in verse 20? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Okay, so we want to look at this passage. Job fell to the ground and he worshipped. The word for worship there literally means to bow down or prostrate yourself. Okay, And that's exactly what Job did. Job just fell down on his face like this before God. And this is the picture. But... The symbol has to mean something. Just falling down on your face, that doesn't mean anything. When I was a kid, just for fun, I used to fall down, keep my body as straight as possible, and fall down and catch myself and go into a push-up. It was just kind of an adrenaline rush thing um, as a kid. (laughs) That's meaningless other than an adrenaline rush. What what, What does that really mean? Well, you know, if you bow down before somebody, certainly it shows that you're recognizing the superiority of who you're bowing down to, right? So Job, Job knew that God was his sovereign. But it's more than just recognizing God as a sovereign. He said this in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name 
of the Lord. So Job is really saying, let me just give you my interpretation here of what's going on. God, You created me. I have chosen to believe in You and serve You all the days of my life. Therefore, God, because I came from You, everything I have, You gave me. So God, You have the right over me because You're my Creator. You can give me as much wealth as You want to and I'll bless Your name. God, You can take anything away from me that You want to, including my children, and I'll bless Your name. That's worship. That's what Job did. Now that's an amazing thing because when, when God allows Satan to mess with your kids, that's tough, isn't it? Um, that's that's tough. I would like to I, I would like to just take a tangent real quick and, and go into why would God do it that way? Because I, I think it could help some of us. Why why does God do things that way? I mean, what's the purpose of that? The purpose is this God gets glory from Job's response. Would you agree with that? How does God get glory from Job's response? Well, one, the accuser of the brethren said he'll never do it. And what happened? He did it. He, he, he worshipped God and did not fall into blaming God or cursing God. So it's kind of, God stuck it in Satan's face, so to speak. So now the whole angelic realm sees what's going on, right? It's not just Satan. All the angels are there as spectators checking this thing out. And it's like, yep, there's no doubt that the children of God chose to worship God even when God allowed everything to be taken away from them. So God is glorified in the heavenlies. God is also glorified through this story. Why? Because this story has been proclaimed for the last 4,000 years. And I have the privilege and honor in 2018 of giving God glory through Job's response. Isn't that cool? It really is. And you guys remember Moses back in Egypt? Remember the children of Israel? They're oppressed under Pharaoh. And finally, after hundreds of years, um, they were doing forced labor, hard labor. And God sends Moses into the midst. And Moses does the miracles. And the children of Israel say, yes, okay, we'll come out. God wants to take you out and bring you into a promised land. And so they go through these ten plagues, right? And God hardens Pharaoh, hardens Pharaoh's heart each time. And when He hardens Pharaoh's heart, what happens to the children of Israel? Well, initially, Pharaoh made it even more difficult for the Israelites. And they complained to Moses, what is this? You're leading us out of here and all you're doing is making it even harder for us? Pharaoh's just abusing us even more. What, what is going on here, Moses? Moses cries out to God, God, what is going on here? And God said, this is pretty amazing. Well, let me, let me, uh, let me before I get to this. So finally, Moses gets them out of Israel. Right? The last plague was the 10th plague where God took the firstborn of everybody. And so 2 million people, whatever it was, leave. And they, they're going to go into the wilderness to worship God and eventually get to the Promised Land. Well, So they go up and they're stuck at the Red Sea. What does God do? Here's what He says. 
And I will harden, this is not on the screen, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Okay, so they're abused for 400 years. They're abused under Pharaoh in the here and now. Finally, they get out of all these plagues. They're leaving. But they're not leaving. They're stuck up against the Red Sea. And now, Pharaoh's, God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he sends his army to bear down on them. I mean, does that seem right? I mean, it's like, isn't it enough is enough? But I will gain honor by means of Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Okay, that word for honor is the same word for glory. Okay, I will be glorified. That's kabod. That's the heaviness. That's the weightiness of God. I'm going to be glorified by hardening Pharaoh's heart. So, here's what's going on. We view life through tunnel vision. Everything that comes to me if I'm not spiritually minded, it's all, it's all comfort. It's all the avoidance of pain, right? Everything I do is for the avoidance of pain. I'm speaking, humanly speaking now. So, it's all perspective. If I think that's not fair that my car was crashed. That's not fair that this woman, this good Christian woman had a miscarriage. That's not fair that God would bring these people out and and have them hemmed in against the Red Sea and let Pharaoh's army just bear down on them and terrorize them. That's not fair. That, that See, that's all my perspective. That's the problem. We have to view things from God's perspective. God's perspective is this. I'm God. You're not. <laughs> okay, This is profound. I created you. You're my creature. I make the rules. I'm so superior to you that you need to give me glory because that's who I am. But not only I'm not a tyrant, I love you, I know what's best for you, and I'm going to be working what's best for you, and you need to learn to trust me through your worship. Okay, that's what's going on. It's not that God is trying to terrorize people, God is not against people, uh, God is good. And God is kind and compassionate. Where's the compassion in this thing? Well, the children of Israel, the Red Sea parted and they went through and Pharaoh's army was destroyed once and for all. Okay, So God did protect the children of Israel. And they will know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. What's the point of that? God cared about the Egyptians. He wanted them to know that He was the one true God. They didn't have to worship the Ra, the sun God, and all their other little gods. He wanted the Egyptians to get saved. He's good, right? Alright, back to Job. Back to Job. Job recognized that God has the right to take and God has the right to give. And as Job Job recognized that he, as the creature, was there as a servant to the one true God. So, you know, here's, again, God's perspective. Let me, let me bring it forth a couple thousand years. Would you believe probably the ultimate goal would be for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Is that not one of the ultimate goals that we have? What is more important? Being upset because my car is wrecked 
or being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ through the circumstance of my car being wrecked. What is more important? Being more like Jesus Christ or keeping all my children? That's a tough one. But honestly, to give God glory and to be conformed to His image is more important than anything. Is it not? Because Jesus said, if you want to be My disciple, you need to hate your mother, father, brother, daughter, sister. He didn't mean literally hate them. He just meant as far as what's the most important thing here? I'm it, guys. I'm your Savior. I'm your Lord. I'm the King of kings. I came to earth. I died on the cross for you. Make a choice. Serve Me or serve your family. Serve Me or serve your business. Serve Me or serve your money. Make your choice. Does that sound reasonable? So I'm I'm trying to get us to think. Look at it from God's perspective, not our human perspective. And if you're still struggling with the concept, you're not alone. It's hard. And the best then I can tell you is what Isaiah said. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and His ways are higher than our ways, aren't they? They really are. But we want to be like Job regardless of circumstance. I'm just a creature. If God gives it, hey, praise God. If God takes it, He knows best. I trust Him. You see, well, worship involves trust. Worship involves knowing. Okay? Because God knows what's best. What happened at the end of the story? Is God just really that cruel and mean? No, not at all. God gave him seven more sons, three more daughters, and doubled all his possessions. So again, it's, it's about God's glory. Okay, expressions of worship. That was Job. How about Jehoshaphat? We looked at Jehoshaphat a couple of weeks ago in Second Chronicles. And I shared with you how Jehoshaphat worshiped, uh, praised God. Remember, uh, the context was the children of Israel were being attacked by the Ammonites and the Moabites, right? Massive army moving against Judah. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. And Jehoshaphat, he did the right thing. He turned and prayed. He turned to God in prayer. He didn't know what to do. He was terrified. Uh, but he made the right decision. So he prays. And then, I told you two weeks ago, God raises up Jehaziel, this prophet, and Jehaziel says, hey, God's got your back on this. Don't even worry about this. God's going to fight your battle for you. You're not even going to have to do it. Okay, has the victory happened yet? No. Some guy named Jehaziel, probably wearing some kind of camel's hair garment, comes and says, hey, God's got this. Don't worry about it. It's cool. Well, there's hundreds of thousands of people marching on Jehoshaphat. You're going to believe this guy, this flake with a camel hair garment? Jehoshaphat chose to believe him. What does he do in verse 18? Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord worshiping. The whole nation is like bowing down before God at the word of the prophet. They're believing what the prophet says before it happens. What does that take? Faith, right? It takes faith. So what is this act of worship here that's really going on in verse 18? Well, Jehoshaphat knows the one true God. He recognizes his complete inability 
to do anything. And he recognizes God's complete ability to take care of this situation. And so they all bow down fall down to the ground. It's a recognition of the sovereignty of God. It's the recognition of the covenant-keeping God is for them. And it's a statement of faith that God, we believe what the prophet just said. You have the power to do it, and we're going to worship you for that. Verse 19, the Levites and the sons of the Kohites and the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. So first they worship, then what happens? They praise. So it's interesting that worship comes first. And then he sends his praise team out into the field before the battle. And God just turns the army on themselves. They all destroy themselves just like he promised they would. So I wonder, do you have to wor- does wor- worship have to come first? Well, in the sense, if you're not saved, if you don't know who God is, you can't praise him. Obviously, you have to meet Jesus. You have to make a choice to serve the one true God. Okay, we saw Jehoshaphat. Um, You know, I have an application for that. Uh, When circumstances are overwhelming, what should we do according to Jehoshaphat? We should figuratively, I mean, you can literally bow down, but we should figuratively bow before God and say, God... I'm your child. I'm in covenant with you. You've made so many wonderful promises. And I know you have the power, the ability, and you love me, and you're going to take care of this. That's your act of worship. So how does this work? Um, I think it was a week ago. I was at work, and I was talking to my uh, boss. And he's uh, probably late 20s, younger guy. And he... Before he came to Liberty to work, he had nothing. He couldn't even uh, feed his family. And they, they gave him a job. And he came in as a, an online teacher. And they got promoted right away to like the science chair. And they got promoted again to be the director over all the chairs in like a really short time. And so I said, I said why? How did this happen? What, what's going on with that? I, I, I kind of felt prompted to ask him the question. He just looked at me like he was thinking about what he want, if he really wanted to share the true answer. And he just stared at me and he said, I got down on my face and I put my head on the ground and I told God, I can't do this. I don't have the experience. I'm too young. I don't know what to do. God, I, I need your help. I mean, the man's laying there with his face on the ground. And he said, God spoke to me and said, if you will abide in me and trust me, I will give you wisdom beyond your years like you've never seen. And I I was stunned hearing this, right? Do you hear this in the workplace that I got on my face before God? You don't hear that. So I went back to my office and I'm thinking about that and I just lost it. I was just weeping because I have the privilege of working for a man of God who takes his problems to God by getting on his face and acknowledging who the so- his sovereign is and he knows where his help comes from. Awesome. I mean, awesome. Great stuff, guys. So I just want to encourage you, when you're going through the difficulties of life, 
You need to get on your face, figuratively speaking, right? Because you are presenting yourself to the God of the universe that you're in relationship with who can uh, plead. He can, he can make it right. He can plead your case. He can bring you justice. He can bring you mercy. He can take care of whatever situation you're in. Wonderful. Alright, let's take a look at Jesus' expression of worship. So we go to John chapter 4. First, I'm going to just give you Jesus' short teaching on worship. And then we'll see how He did with that. This is the woman at the well in Samaria. Remember Jesus and His disciples were passing through Samaria. And they stop at the well to drink. And then His disciples go to get food. So Jesus is alone. This woman uh, comes to the well. And Jesus has this conversation about get me a drink of water. You guys remember that? Okay. So... He's in this conversation. I'm going to pick it up in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Jesus has just said, Hey, you've got five husbands. Of course, the one you're with now is not your husband. And she said, Yes, sir, I perceive you must be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming. When neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, what's going on here is kind of a passing... We're going from the old, worshiping on mountains. So the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, right? And Jesus is like, hey, under the old covenant, you guys didn't get it. Uh, It's at Jerusalem, and that's where we do our animal sacrifice thing, and you guys have missed out on it. Also, the Samaritans, they only accepted the first five books of the Pentateuch. They rejected the Law and the Prophets. So Jesus is like, you guys don't even know what you worship." because they rejected the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures. But Jesus said, hey, there's a time coming and is even now basically at hand. He said, you're going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? In spirit, I believe, is in contrast to worshiping on the mountains. It's not about the geography. In spirit, not not in the Holy Spirit, in your human spirit or your heart. So now, I don't need to come to this sanctuary right here to worship God. I can worship God with my heart, my mind, all my strength. I can do it in the bathroom. I can do it on a rooftop. I can do it driving in my car, right? So we got to worship God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's in spirit. We also have to worship God in truth. And I believe... Jesus, part of that in truth was this woman, hey, you, you Samaritans are rejecting the Scriptures. You don't even know the truth. So I, I think some of that re- was uh, in reference to that. But also, Jesus was the truth, right? The one who was the way, the truth, and the life is sitting at the well with the Samaritan woman. He's like, you need to worship in truth. You can't worship God unless you know Jesus Christ, right? 
To worship God, you have to go through Jesus Christ. And so I believe it was, it was, he was alluding to his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Say, hey, there's a day coming when you're going to meet me. You're going to meet me. I am the truth. And when you worship me, it's because you know. When you worship my Father, it's because you know me. Isn't that cool? Okay. So that's Jesus teaching on worship. Did he do it? Of course he did it. Um, you know, if you think about it, when Jesus went to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, and he's contemplating, he's praying, and he's about to take the sin of the entire world, the entire human race, on himself. And he's contemplating being nailed onto a cross, which was for criminals. And what did he say? He said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. What, where is the worship? The worship is, Father, you asked me to come to earth. You asked me to empty myself, take the form of a bondservant, and die on a cross. Father, I obeyed you. I'm obeying you. I'm going to see it through. Not my will, but your will be done. So what's another way to say how to worship God? Not my will, but His will be done. And that's, I mean, if any man epitomized that, it was Jesus, the Son of God. And that's exactly what He did. Um, Paul did the same thing in Romans 12.1. What was Paul's expression of worship or teaching on worship? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So now there's some other words that come next to worship, right? Spiritual service. But you can't serve God unless you say, not my will, but your will be done, right? So serving God is a choice to do His will and not my will. And so now, in the Old Testament, they offered up these animal sacrifices. That was their worship service. That's how they served God. They couldn't draw near to God because they were sinners. So they had to offer animal sacrifices as representing the fact that something had to die. Something had to pay for their sin. But now Jesus, by offering Himself once and for all on a cross, we don't have to offer animal sacrifices. What do we offer? Here I am. <laughs> Here I am, God. <laughs> Take me. Right? We offer ourselves. God, here I am. I'm literally Your creature. You are so superior. You created me. You breathed onto me, God. You spoke. And here I am. So Lord, what, what can I say but I'm here to serve you. You made me. You guys see, I'm trying to shift the perspective back from God's perspective and not on my little, oh man, that hurts. No, that's too much. I can't do that. That's too much money. I, my car broke down and, and I, I just lost my job and my, my son's sick all the time. And I mean, this is terrible. If it's, if it's one thing, it's another. I mean, this is, this is sick. Who wants this? God... Why don't you just kill yourself? Yeah, why don't I just kill myself? This is terrible. Well, why don't you go do it now? Yeah, maybe I'll just go kill myself right now. I mean, do you see 
If you're not looking at what God's looking at, you're, you're going to be chewed up and spit out by Satan, right? So we have to look at it from God's perspective. Okay, nearing coming down the home stretch here. How do they worship in heaven? That should be enlightening, shouldn't it? Let's take a look at Revelation 7, 11 through 12. Okay, this is what's going on in heaven. You want to know what are they doing in heaven? I'm going to tell you what they're doing in heaven. Here we go. I think I'll read... uh, I'm going to start at verse 9. It's probably not up there. After these things I looked, and there was a great multitude which no one could count. you got billions of people up there from every nation, every tribe on the earth, all people, all languages, standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you guys see billions of people? Here's the throne. It's a pretty bad throne up here. Let's just say the throne's up here. Jesus is up here on the throne. And there's countless million, billion people, angels. All I mean, everyone is just worshiping God before the throne. He's right here. It's an awesome moment. So verse 11, what are, what are they doing? And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. So you got these living creature, angelic being things up there. You've got the angels up there. you got these elders, uh, these people up there. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Didn't we see that before? With Job? With Jehoshaphat? What is this? thing about falling down before God. Well, again, we see that this is kind of symbolic, but you know, I bet that when we're in the presence of Jesus, I suspect that I'm going to lose my strength and literally just hit the dirt. That's, That's kind of how I suspect it's going to be. Well, what do they do? What do they say? Amen. Blessing and glory. Wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So they see Jesus. They see the Lamb of God. What's their response? They just fall. And apparently they can speak. The angels are falling. The four living creatures are falling. The 24 elders are falling. Everybody's just going to hit the deck in the presence of Jesus Christ. And they say, you get all the glory, God. You get all the honor. That's the only thing we can say. You're so good. You've done it all. You've brought us here. There's nothing we can do, God, except just surrender and offer to you these mere words. So pretty cool worship service. It's coming. It's coming. Um, That word for worship there means... It's uh, pros kineo. Pros means toward. Kineo means to kiss. So that word doesn't mean to fall down. That word means to kiss towards. What do you mean kiss? Well, maybe if you could picture a, a conquering king and his subjects and the subjects are groveling at his feet, kissing his feet type of a thing. That Maybe that picture. Or maybe you remember the prostitute. The prostitute that crashes the Pharisees' party. She comes in. She falls at Jesus' feet. 
and she's anointing Jesus' feet and she's crying and, and she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and she was kissing Jesus' feet. What is that all about? That's a little weird, isn't it? That's not weird. That was an act of worship where this woman came to the one she knew that could forgive her sin. So her bowing down, washing his and kissing his feet, what she was saying, Jesus, I recognize you to be the Son of God. I recognize that only God can forgive sin. And I present myself to you now as a sinful creature in need of forgiveness. That was worship. That's awesome. You know, I, there's another illustration with kissing in the Bible that's pretty intense. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, uh, 10. The psalmist is speaking to the most powerful people on the planet. If you could speak to Putin, Kim Jong-un, Trump, and whatever other major leaders are out there, the European leaders, what would you say to them? I'm going to tell you what the psalmist says to them. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. That homage literally means to kiss. The King James translates it as kiss the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So there's a message to the kings of the earth. And I've, I had an idea on this. I don't know if it's a God idea. I had this idea a year or two ago. I haven't acted on it. You can pray for me. Um, I thought, you know, I should do a YouTube video and share Psalm 2 with the kings of the earth. Address it to Putin. Address it to Kim Jong-un. Address it to Trump. Address it to Merkel. Address it to all these kings of the earth. And tell them to worship God or face His anger and wrath. Tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. Share the Gospel with them. Put it on YouTube. But again, I don't know if that was just me or if that was actually a God thing and I haven't done it yet. But, I mean, the psalmist wasn't ashamed to do it, right? Jesus certainly wasn't ashamed to go to the cross so the whole earth could learn about Him and bow down and worship Him. And isn't that why we're having this speaker come on the 30th? Because don't we want to share this good news with other people so they don't have to face the anger of Jesus, His wrath, they can be in that heavenly worship scene where they're all just bowing down and just celebrating the goodness of Jesus, the Lamb. So how can we conclude? Did I need to answer the question, do we have a praise team? Do we have a worship team or do we have a praise and worship team? Well, okay, let's say the definition of praise is to speak good things to God. Now, speaking meanings, you sing it, you can dance it, you can whatever it. Okay. So praise is speaking good things to God. Worship is doing God's will. It's accepting His sovereignty and being His servant. So, Rebecca up here called us to worship God. She said we need to submit to Jesus. She was calling us to worship Jesus Christ. So yes, we have a praise and worship team, in my opinion. And a very good one. Uh, really appreciate those 
men and women who come up here. Um, but I just want to make sure what Rebecca was saying, Rebecca was speaking probably more to anyone that may never have bowed down to Jesus Christ and asked to receive Him as Lord and Savior. If you have never done that, you're a sinner. You lie, you steal, you cheat. You do. You're a sinner. And God has to punish sin. But the good news is, if you confess your sin to Jesus, if you receive Him as Lord and Savior of your life, then He will send you the power of His Holy Spirit. God Himself will come and live in you. You'll be saved from your sins. You'll be in heaven. You'll be doing all this wonderful praise and worship stuff. And you'll be glorifying God the rest of your life. Who wouldn't want that? So you can do that. Um, if you've never done that, you need to do it. You need to do it. You can sit there right where you're at and just pray, Jesus, <laughs> yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, no doubt about it. I want to worship You, Jesus. I need forgiveness from my sins. Yes, Jesus, come! Thank you for listening to this message from Cornerstone Community Church. We are located in Lynchburg, Virginia at 525 Old Graves Mill Road. You can find us online at cornerstonelynchburg.com, contact us by email, cornerstonecom at comcast.net, or call us at 434-847-4796. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace.